0: You're listening to Pure Sex Radio. Training men, educating women. Brought to you by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us on the web at puresexradio.com. Good day, radio listeners. Welcome to this edition of the Pure Sex Radio broadcast. We're glad to have you here with us. My name is Jonathan, and we're really excited to have a special guest on the line with us today. Tony Ingracia with the Power of Purity Ministry is with us, and so, Tony, thank you for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Hi, Jonathan. Thank you very much. I'm excited to visit.
0: Yeah, and we're looking forward to having our listeners hear your story. But before we dive into that, I just want to remind our listeners as we do every now and then that we are a listener supported broadcast. And that means that the way you're hearing my voice is because we've had partners come alongside of us and uh, decide to financially support what we're doing. And this allows us to be heard in many different countries and beyond uh, lots of different distributors of the podcast. And uh, we're able to reach thousands of people every single week, and we praise God for that. And it's uh, because of the partnership of listeners just like you. So if you'd like to learn about the ways in which you can partner with our ministry, simply go to puresexradio.com and click on the Donate button. Well, Tony, I want to dive right in. I'd love for our listeners to get to know you and kind of your story and just you know, the the journey that God has taken you on. So starting as early as you'd like in your life, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and, uh, and your personal story?
1: Okay, that sounds great, Jonathan. Thank you. Well, I'm a hotly pursued, chased down and being captured son of the living God. And I'm just very grateful uh, for who God is and his presence in my life and what he's done in my heart and life. You know, uh, in John 10.10, Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And without a doubt, the primary way that evil has literally attempted to destroy my life is through the area of my wounded and broken sexuality. And it began very, very early in my life and then followed me for years and years to come. I'm so sorry. I'm I'm having an issue in my throat, Jonathan. No problem. Um, so when I was 10 years old, uh, I found my father's pornography and it turns out that my, you know, although I didn't understand it at the time, I think it's fair to say that my father was a very highly sexualized man and he had quite a bit of pornography. Of course, in those days there was no internet, so there were magazines and books. So he had stacks of pornographic magazines in his bedroom closet penthouse playboy hustler magazines etc and these triple x books and i think i was 10 years old when i found that pornography and it was not a little event for me it was not a benign event like i found it and then you know it was no big deal i i saw it one time and and it and it was gone it it's as if something latched onto me it was a very powerful event I liken it to, uh, you know, you see this picture of an eagle swooping down above the water because he sees a fish and he's about to catch this fish. So he's got his claws out and I feel like something leapt out of that pornography on, onto my chest and Mm. dug its claws into me. And And even though I was,
0: and you felt this even as a 10 year old boy?
1: Very much. Mm. I did. And You know, in retrospect, I I never understood this, but later when I got into my own therapeutic process, in retrospect, it was amazing for me to realize how powerful that was. It's as if the pornography had a voice and I could hear it. Mm. I wanted to look at it so bad. My father worked full time. My mom worked part time. So there were times when both of them were out of the house and these moments of solitude afforded the perfect opportunity for me to to sneak and look at the porn. And I remember sitting on my mom and dad's bed in their bedroom. And of course, those magazines in those days had centerfolds. So you could open this centerfold and and there'd be this big, beautiful, colorful picture of a naked woman. I remember sitting on their bed and literally opening six and eight and ten centerfolds all around me, surrounding me surrounding myself with these uh, images of these naked women. And the days that my mother was at home because she was home more often than not, she only worked a few hours a week part time. And I wanted to look at the porn so bad. There was this kind of drivenness in me, this hunger, this thirst for it. And I wanted to look, but my mom was home. So my mom and my my common sense told me, Tony, you better not look, you might get caught. Right. I I intuitively knew I shouldn't be doing this. So I wanted to look, and it's as if this is when I say the porn had a voice. I I could like hear this thing saying, "Tony, we're waiting for you. Come and look. Come mm. and look at the magazines. You know you want to see us. We're we're waiting." And there was really a drivenness about this. And in retrospect, I believe, Jonathan that my sexual addiction may have literally began when I was 10 or 11 years old as I got involved with that pornography and those triple X books.
0: Now, you know, I'm, I'm imagining just this, this 10-year-old boy in, in a very real way kind of being, uh, kind of having his, his innocence just ripped away from him uh, in a very yes. profound way, and so emotionally— I mean, what did that feel like for you as a 10-year-old boy to kind of have, like you said, sort of this thing come over you where it seemed like pornography had, had its own voice? I mean, how confusing was that for you? And what did that feel like for you? And did you feel like you had any any outlets where you could carry that information to, to someone else?
1: Well, that's a really good question, and I'll I'll try to speak to it. I'm just kind of thinking out loud. But the first thing that occurs to me to say— is that uh, as we're doing this podcast interview today, as of the day of this recording, I'm 59 years old, and uh, I don't look at pornography now. It's not part of my life. I've I've resisted against it for many years now, as God has worked in my heart and life, and I'm learning to walk in purity by God's grace and mercy. But what I'm saying is that as a 59-year-old man, I know that I could not handle looking at porn now as a 59-year-old man, what it would do to me. And what I mean is the lust that it would provoke within my heart and soul, what it would do to my equilibrium in my relationship with God, what it would do in my relationship with my wife, uh, the, the lust it would inspire, the shame it would inspire, just what it would cultivate in me would be absolutely harmful to me. I'm, I'm, I I mean, believe it would mess me up as a 59-year-old man. And you're telling me that you're going to take that and you're going to put that on a 10-year-old boy, 11, 12, a 15-year-old boy, and he has no frame of reference whatsoever on, on mm-hmm. what to do with that on or how to manage that. And I just believe, Jonathan, that, that we have dramatically underestimated the significance of pornography in a man's heart and life and and in a boy's heart and life you know there's this uh prevailing attitude kind of uh, diminishment or minimization like it's not that big of a deal for a boy to look at porn it's part of growing up it's part of the american culture every boy finds pornography it's part of becoming a man And I know these uh, situations where fathers and brothers and cousins and uncles literally deliberately expose young boys to porn. I know a a situation where a young man, he turned 13 years old, and his uncle brought him to a prostitute to have sexual intercourse for the first time so the boy could become a man. Mm. And I just think that it's so... Uh, misguided. It's unbelievably misguided because this stuff is dis- destructive. And maybe in a natural sense, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal. But when you bring God into the picture, spirituality and the kingdom of God and the standards of God, the standards of purity, this stuff is just absolutely destructive. And I, I experienced it. I, I have no doubt that it it profoundly harmed my heart and my life and my soul as a young boy. And right now, the picture I'm seeing, Jonathan, I'm kind of an outdoorsman. I love to, to shoot a bow and arrow and go hiking and fishing and camping and hunting and all that stuff. And imagine if I was aiming at a target uh, with my gun and I'm going to take a long shot, maybe a couple hundred yards. I'm going to try to hit the bullseye and I shoot my gun And along the way, accidentally, my bullet hits the the tiniest twig or uh, a limb of a tree. And therefore, it would affect the trajectory of that bullet. So you hear and, and that bullet ricochets. And it literally, because it hit that point, it throws something off course. It throws the bullet off course and creates a completely different trajectory. It's as if I believe that God has an intended trajectory for the sexual purity of a young man, the sexual progress and development of a young man. And by interjecting that pornography at the right point, I feel like I'm the bullet and the porn is the limb. And it just literally ricocheted my life and created a completely new and different sexual trajectory. And uh, the scary thing about trajectory is if you follow it, when a new trajectory is created, it gets further and further and further and further off course all the time. Right. And I think that's what that pornography did to me. So that's the first thing that occurs to me in response to your question, is just uh, I think it really affected me as a boy mm-hmm. in, in profound and significant ways.
0: So then after you've had this introduction and and, you know, this really what I would— classify as a traumatic event, um, it sounds to me like there wasn't uh, an outlet for you to be able to talk about this with anybody. So share with our listeners what happened next. Where did things go from that point of after first exposure to pornography?
1: Well, yes, I I had this intuitive uh, sense of shame. Like I I somehow intuitively knew I should not be sneaking and looking at this porn. So isn't it interesting that just the... the intuitive sense of the heart of man to hide uh, something that he senses is wrong, just like Adam and Eve, I guess, hid in the bushes after they ate the forbidden fruit. They, they, their instinct was to hide. It's interesting that they hid from one another first by putting leaves covering themselves so they couldn't see each other. But then they tried to hide from God by, by getting in the bushes. So my instinct certainly was to hide this thing something important that I do want to share that that's occurring to me Jonathan I just think that this is an important part of my story and I wonder if if it's something that's a reality for so many other young boys and and men today who are struggling with this issue but in my family of origin there was uh there was a uh I'm trying to think of how to say it just a uh considerable obvious lack of
0: relational
1: warmth in our family. Uh, We did not touch each other except in anger. I I would be spanked when my father was angry. I have no memory whatsoever when I was a child of ever being tucked into bed. I have no memory of sitting on on my parents' lap and having somebody read a book to me, uh, caressing my hair. There was no physical hugs or touches or anybody ever said, I love you. To this Mm -hmm. day, it's awkward in the context of our family to say, I love you. In fact, later when I got into my own therapeutic process, I was talking to my therapist about this and how it really bothered me because I felt like in my heart that I wanted to say to my mom, I love you. But it was so awkward because there was like this invisible rule, this unwritten rule in our family that you just don't say that. So it, it felt like this invisible barrier, and so I kind of worked through that. And as uh, as an adult man, I I might have been 35 or so, I I made the decision I'm gonna cross this barrier. So I just started saying to my mother, I love you. So when I'd see her, I'd kiss her on the cheek, say, Hey mom, I love you. Or or we'd go to lunch and. we'd we'd separate. I'd kiss her and say, I love you, mom. And she'd say, well, okay then. Mm. Or she'd say, uh, she'd say, well, I'll, I'll talk to you Thursday. My own mother to this day cannot say the words to me. I, I have no doubt whatsoever that she does love me, but there's this conspicuous absence. And I just believe in retrospect, one of the things that I learned about this is that as a young boy, I think there was a kind of emotional void in my heart and life. Like I was longing for someone to touch me. Will someone touch me? Will someone say, I love you? I was longing for like this relational and verbal and emotional intimacy, a kind of acceptance and affirmation. And I think by the time I was nine and 10 and 11 years old, it's like, there was this hole in my heart. I was emotionally starving. So, when I found my father's pornography, I don't think it was just a sexual event for me, mm-hmm. like it awakened something in me sexually. I think it was much deeper than that. I think it was a kind of emotional thing that somehow I was seeing and finding in this pornography. Something that that I was longing for in my heart that I myself didn't even know or understand. I saw people touching each other. I saw people enjoying each other, um, being affectionate, and and what appeared to be intimacy. And I I think it kind of illustrated or was a metaphor of something that I needed. And so somehow I think that made the event that much more powerful to me.
0: Mm Mm-hmm yeah and if you if you think about it i mean that is um there is always you know no matter what path we take towards illegitimate ends um there is always underneath that legitimate needs and legitimate desires. And so we see this all the time when when we help guys begin to unpack their story and their history with pornography and their first exposure to it. All these layers start to unfold. We realize that, listen, when you peel back all those layers, because like you said, the trajectory can get off. And then, you know, years down the road, you're miles and miles away from the original intended trajectory. But But that doesn't mean That because you're miles and miles off of that, that something was wrong with the original intended trajectory. (laughs) It just means you got off track from that. And so we always try to encourage men to say, listen, those feelings you had at 10 and 12 and 15 and those different, especially when your body starts changing and these desires and these urges and these kind of things, when you recognize that there is a goodness inherent in those then you can see how easily the enemy can manipulate those towards something that is not healthy and not good, because he he takes what is good, what is healthy and right, and then he says, you know what, because you're not actually getting those needs for love and acceptance and and touch and those kind of things in a a healthy, legitimate way, I'm going to introduce that branch, that twig, that thing that's going to... You know, cause you to get off track because it's still tied to those legitimate and healthy needs and desires, but That's you know right. what but how does a ten year old process that right a ten year old doesn't have the capacity to analyze and process that all in the way that we're talking about it now, and so share with us how that journey extended on into your teenage years of this you know introduction to this material that was starting to at least connect with you in a way that felt. Like something that was felt like it was meeting a need that was there. Um, And how did that, you know, transpire throughout your teenage and early adult years? Okay.
1: Well, it occurs to me to share one more story pretty quick just around the pornography because I do think it's significant. And uh, it's a story that I just kind of call Risk to Peak. I mentioned earlier that my mom worked part time, so she was gone some of the times and the the solitude of those moments afforded the perfect opportunity for me to sneak and look at the pornography. But more often than not, my mother was at home and it was too risky to look. But I wanted to look so bad, Jonathan, that I started taking the risk to sneak and peek and look at my dad's porn, even when my own mother was at home.
0: Mm.
1: So she would go down in the basement and there were five of five of us uh, siblings at the time. So there was a pretty big family. And my mom did the laundry. The laundromat was in the basement. So, sh- so I knew from experience that when she went downstairs to do the laundry, that she'd typically be down there for at least 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. I can only imagine, you know, she had a system as she took the clothes out of the dryer, hung it up, moved the load from the washer to the dryer, put a new load in the washer. So she was down there for 10, 15 minutes. So I would sneak. I wanted to look so bad. I was willing to take the risk to look, even though my common sense was telling me, Tony, you better not do this. You might get caught. But I, I could not stand it. The temptation was that strong. So I would sneak in the closet, I'm sitting there and looking at the porn while I'm trying to listen with my ears for my mother's footsteps ascending the, the steps toward the kitchen so I could quickly close the porn, cl- close the closet and get out of their bedroom and escape without getting caught. And it was later when I was in my therapeutic process, I realized the significance of that story because I think already as a 10 and 11 year old boy, it speaks of the birth of my sexual addiction In other words, I was already being compelled by sex or said another way. Sex was becoming more powerful to me. Sex was beginning to control me instead of me controlling sex. Even when my common sense and my conscience was telling me, Tony, don't do this. It's Mm -hmm. too risky. You might get caught. It's like already Sex was gaining this authority over me. And that's the point that I'm wanting to make, that this dynamic then began to follow me into my life, Jonathan. And I began to take risk with sex. And I can't tell you throughout my adolescence, my teenage years and a young adulthood, how many situations I found myself in where that very dynamic was right there. My common sense was telling me Tony, you better not do this. It's too risky. You might get caught. What would people think if they find out? But somehow I could not resist the temptation. It's like a kind of compulsion or drivenness. And so I would just perpetually act out in a variety of sexual ways. And over the years, I got involved in all kinds of things. Uh, As I got older, uh, the pornography Led to the discovery of masturbation. I became involved uh, with compulsive masturbation, and then I became involved in fornication, uh, which is sexual intercourse before you're married. After I got married, I became involved in numerous adulterous affairs. I went to strip clubs on occasion. I used pornography. On a, uh, I was I was never heavily seriously involved in porn, but it was a regular part of my life. And so I acted out, acted out. I became a true Christian, a born again Christian when I was 16 years old. And, and I love God. Uh, when I understood the gospel, I, I immediately fell in love with God. I felt like the gospel answered all the big questions of life. You know, why, why am I here? Where did I Mm -hmm. come from? How did the universe get here What's the purpose of life What's worth living for What's worth dying for It it explained the purpose of my life I somehow intuitively knew This explains my life I'm going to live the rest of my life Because of this message The gospel Mm -hmm. I want to tell this to other people So I immediately felt a call to ministry And after high school I went directly into Bible school To study for ministry so I became a Christian when I was 16, but there was this terrible duplicity in my life. There was the, the public Tony, the church Tony, the Christian Tony that everybody saw and knew. In Bible college, I was elected student body president the senior year of my senior year in college, got a full tuition scholarship. It wasn't a huge school, maybe 2000 students there. But I was elected kind of as the trophy young man, as the example of this Bible school, the product. Look at this young, gifted young man who loves God and is going to serve God and go out and do great things for Christ. He's He's our student body president. I'm lifted up as this example. And yet at the same time, there's this horrible duplicity because there's this secret part of Tony that's struggling with sex that's being controlled by sex instead of being able to control sex. And so there was this this horrible duplicity in my life.
0: And so um, we, we've we got about three or four minutes left here, and I would love for our listeners to be able to hear what was the catalyst that eventually got you into a uh, a path of true recovery and really beginning to deal with this in the open, bringing it into the light. What were the events that led up to you getting into um as you put it, your therapeutic process.
1: Well, that's quite a uh, quite a story, but I'll just try to give a very abbreviated version. Uh, really, it was the disaster of my marriage. I met my beautiful wife, Sherry. We got married. We've been uh, as the day as of the day of this recording. We've been married thirty three years, and we are absolutely. A living miracle because at least the first half of our marriage was a total disaster and at the epicenter of our crisis was the issue of sex I was basically a young man with a sexual addiction when we got married my wife was a young lady with a sexual aversion because the fact is the deepest pain and hurt and shame of her life revolved around sex she was raped at the age of 13 There was a period of promiscuity. She got pregnant and had an abortion at the age of 17. This is all before she was even a Christian. Mm. So we end up getting married, and we're basically both a mess around our sexual selves. We're two very deeply broken people. And when you take two messes, Jonathan, and you put them together, do you know what you get? A bigger mess. You get a bigger (laughs) mess. So we were an absolute mess around the issue of sex. And so, uh, my wife was kind of shut down. We went for prolonged periods of time with, without sex. One time we went nine months and I didn't know how to handle that. I felt hurt. I felt rejected. I still had all my issues, my sexual addiction that I hadn't dealt with. So I began to act out in the context of the marriage. I thought, fine, if my wife won't have sex with me, then I guess I'll have to get sex other places. So I would go to strip clubs on occasion. I became involved in several different adulterous affairs, culminating in a five-year affair with my wife's best friend, Mm. which is something that I'm just profoundly ashamed of. It's one of the most heinous, horrible, embarrassing things of my life. Uh, You know how you look back and and you think to yourself, who was that? Like, what was I thinking? How did I ever— Uh, Justify and rationalize in my own psyche some of the choices and decisions I made. So our marriage became a bigger and bigger and bigger disaster. And uh, I eventually came to the place I never did get caught by my wife acting out in my sexual sin. But through this odd ministry that I call the heavy hand of God, it's like I just knew within myself, I didn't like myself, Jonathan. I, uh, you know, it's a bad day when you wake up and you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see. I'm, I'm living this duplicitous life. I'm living, I'm making decisions and acting out in violation of my own conscience and in violation of my own profession of faith. This isn't who I am. This isn't who I I'm supposed to be. And I knew it. And I just was becoming more and more desperate. I hated myself. And so through a culmination of events, I actually went to my wife one night and I confessed to her. I said, babe, we've got to talk. And I kind of spilled my guts and I told her about my acting out. I told her about this five-year affair that I had been having. She didn't believe me at first. Well... We we ended up crying together that night. I told her, if you want to divorce me, I guess you can divorce me. But I just want you to know, I don't want a divorce. I I want I I want us to stay together. Mm-hmm. I want us to be healthier. But all I know is we can't live like this anymore. We've got to get help. We are so broken. Something is so wrong. And so we cried together. We prayed together. At that point, she told me she did not want a divorce. And so we went into uh, Christian counseling. We started this therapeutic process that in the end was much longer than we expected. We went to counseling for six years. And I can say so much about that process. But in short, it turned out to be very different than what we expected. Mm-hmm. And God basically invited us into the stories of our life. You see, Sherry had never dealt with her rape, her promiscuity, her abortion. I had never dealt with my sexual addiction. I had never, I never understood how pornography had affected me. In addition, I, had, I was sexually abused by two older women when I was an adolescent boy. I had never dealt with my sexual abuse. So it's as if God knew the most hurtful and painful and shameful and broken places of our stories and our lives. And it's like a doctor, if there's a tumor or a cancer on the inside of you, the doctor says, I've got to cut you open to get to the problem. It's as if God knew that He 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 wanted to take us into our stories to these most broken, hurtful, painful, shameful, wounded places of our souls so we could do business with God and kind of get some of those wounded places cleaned up and attended to. One of my favorite scriptures is Psalm 147, verse three. 147:3. Three. Uh, I call it spiritual dynamite because it's only nine nine words, but dynamite is incredibly powerful in a very small package, and it simply says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And I just believe that that speaks of the redemptive heart and intention of God to bring healing, to bring the light of God. That's what he wants to do, bring his light to the dark places of our stories. He wants to bring his peace to the places of torment in our past. He wants to bring freedom to places of captivity and bondage. God is so awesome. And, and we entered into that healing journey with God. We began to walk on this healing path of redemption that God had for us. And mm-hmm. so the Lord began to heal our hearts, our lives, our stories, and our marriage. And it's a miracle. And we, we praise
0: God. That's great. Well, we're going to have to uh, wrap it up there. But Tony, I'd love for you to come back next time so we can uh, continue on on this uh, recovery story, but also then share a little bit more about the ministry that you're involved with. And and folks, if you'd like to learn about Tony's ministry, you can go to powerofpurity.org. Again, that's powerofpurity.org. And uh, Tony, thanks for being with us this time. Thank you, Jonathan. God bless you. And listeners, we look forward to having you back next time on the Pure Sex Radio broadcast.
1: Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken
0: Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.